1: Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the feds follow Ontario's budget a week later with a $500 billion budget of their own. We'll see if there's anything the country's most populous province will appreciate in there. The Starters pistol officially goes off for the race for Toronto mayor. And now that it's April, we wish you a very happy... National Poetry Month. We've got the Ontario Poet Laureate here to discuss his time in the role and favor us with something to get your week off to a poetic bang. With no harangue, the bells will clang as I sharpen my fang, hot dang, we love
2: poetry. It is April 4th, not April Fools, that was not his (laughs) joke. Uh, April 4th, 2023, so let's get to it, just you and me. I know that was a stupid attempt at
1: some humor, but uh, what the heck, we couldn't help ourselves this National Poetry Month. So we're getting into the, you know,
2: capturing the spirit of the thing, as we say. Absolutely. And, you know, it might be a bit late, but it also, if it gave people a chuckle, I don't mind it being a, an April Fool's joke, too. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.
1: Let's get into the mailbag off the top. People have emailed us at TVO.org. That's TVO.org. JMM, what have we got up this week?
2: Uh, this question comes from Twitter user Scotty G, who asks... I'm curious, when creating a budget, do they not have to account for wage increases, e.g., no provincial increases to education, but teachers are without a contract, so do they plan for the money that they think they will have to pay in wages or just plan as everything's stagnant? Mm, Great question, Scotty
1: G. Here is what I think is going on. If you're the finance minister, you can't very well have a line item in your budget that says, here's the money I'm earmarking for a wage increase for teachers because then, in essence, you're making a joke of the collective bargaining process. The process works because both sides go in trying to make their best deal, but not prejudging the outcome. If you had a number in the budget saying, here's what we're gonna give the teachers, they would quite rightly say, hey, I thought we were negotiating here, and you've already decided how this is gonna turn out? No, so that would be a problem. So what do they do instead? Okay, here is where I turn the tables to Mr. McGrath and ask him to explain why finance ministers love to stash money into what's called a contingency fund, where the money sits but is not earmarked
2: for any particular item. That's right. Uh, Peter Bethlenfalvy, the Minister of Finance, uh, put huge amounts of money into uh, contingency funds. They did that throughout COVID in order to handle the uh, uh, unplanned parts of the unplanned pandemic. And they have more contingency funds coming uh, in future years, uh, according to the budget plan they released just, what, two weeks ago now. It is $2 billion for this fiscal year and $4 billion for next year. Uh, Contingency funds are essentially you know, what if funds? What if something goes wrong? What if uh, the Minister of Education has to sign a deal with a 3% wage increase for teachers? Where will the government find that money? Uh, answer, it is in the contingency fund. Uh, remember that, you know, the government can only spend up to a set dollar figure in ev- any given year that they have to ask the legislature for permission for. So they, they never want to come up to that line or and certainly don't want to pass it without going back to the legislature for permission. You know, but so what if, for example, the Supreme Court uh, says that Bill One Twenty Four, which limited the wage increases of public servants to one percent over a three-year period, what if the Supreme Court says that law was unconstitutional? Uh, the government will uh, have to find money to give public servants billions of dollars in back wages. Where do they find that in the contingency fund? In theory, it is possible for the government to exhaust those contingency funds. And while we don't really have like a debt ceiling the way that they do in the U.S., thankfully, the government, as they say, is supposed to ask the legislature for permission to spend. And if they start to get anxious, they can introduce a, a supplemental supply measure to get them through uh, the rest of the fiscal year. And they actually did that back in 2013. 20- Well, in the fall of 2021, they did that uh, so that they would have lots of spending authority to go through the election campaign and they wouldn't face the, let's say, unpleasant prospect of the government uh, running out of money if the budget had not been passed, which they were sort of already thinking ahead on. And uh, so, yes, that is how the art of budget making accounts for what is unknowable on budget day. Okay. Let me ask you
1: a what if about the what ifs. What if, for whatever reason, the contingency
2: money is not needed? What happens to it then? Uh, the traditional practice is that it gets used towards paying down the debt. Uh, the debt of the province is uh, essentially every annual deficit since uh, Confederation. It, you It know, adds up year after year. Uh, at the moment, uh, Ontario owes its lenders more than $350 billion dollars, uh, one of the lines you, well, you used to hear the Conservatives say a lot about uh, it, when they were in opposition is that Ontario is the largest sub-sovereign debt holder uh, in the world, which is just to say that we're not a, a country in our own right. And so uh, we have an enormous amount of debt and we are not a country. That's that's translated that into English. Uh, if the contingency funds were not needed, uh, the money would go towards paying back the the debt that is owed to pensions and banks and financial institutions, uh, both here and abroad, uh, who have lent money to the province uh, since its creation in 1867. There we go. Scotty G, thanks again
1: for the question. Remember, any questions, concerns, comments, whatever you like, email us at org. Now, on to Issue 1.
0: We have been very clear to the government of Canada what the city's needs are and about the importance of supporting Toronto, the country's economic engine.
1: That's Toronto's deputy mayor, and of course, since John Tory's resignation, the city's acting mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, with a less than enthusiastic response to the federal budget. Federal finance minister, Chrystia Freeland, unveiled the budget for the government of Canada last week, nearly $500 billion in spending and of course, the country's biggest city was hoping there might be something in the budget to deal with its $1 billion shortfall, which the city says is a hangover from COVID-19. JMM, I think we know where you're going here, but tell us more about the city's
2: reaction to this budget. So Ontario municipalities are required by provincial law to balance their operating budgets every year. Uh, they can go into debt to fund major capital projects like uh, transit or parks or libraries, but they can't issue debt to meet payroll or fuel costs, for example. Toronto passed a budget this spring, the last thing that John Tory did as mayor before formally resigning, that was balanced in theory, <laughs> but not really. The budget included an assumption that Toronto would receive nearly $1 billion in provincial or federal aid. Uh, in particular, uh, McKelvey told reporters that the budget included that assumption uh, in part because of election promises made by the federal liberals in 2021. Exactly. In fact, the deputy mayor followed up last week's comments with a letter to Christian. Freeland
1: yesterday, Monday, in which she urged the finance minister and the federal government, quote, to honor its election promise to support the city of Toronto with COVID 19 costs, largely to support the transit system and homelessness response. So the city is not portraying this as going cap in hand to the feds. It's about, as far as the city's concerned, the feds fulfilling a past promise made. Now, in a strange way, do you think the feds and Doug Ford are on the same page on this issue? And I ask because I note the provincial budget of two weeks ago also did not have anything specific for the capital city in terms of helping with its budget shortfall. And the premier is well on the record as saying that the city ought to be, quote, driving efficiencies rather than coming cap in hand to other
2: levels of government for help. You know, the premier has his perspective about how the city should be run, and, and it's been a consistent one, I will give him that. It's It's been the same uh, basic philosophy since he was first elected as a city councillor in 2010. Um, I will say that I think, you know, your point about them both being on the same page, if you are the federal government or the provincial government, it is really difficult to separate Toronto's current financial state. As much as the immediate problem is uh, derived from COVID and its knock-on effects, the thing that every policymaker... At the province and federal government knows Toronto has the lowest property taxes in of, of any major city in the GTA and I, I believe any major city across uh, the province. And it's just it is not Queen's Park's job and it is not the federal parliament's job to keep Toronto's property taxes low. And so they, they really do look askance at the... Uh, very frequent requests from Toronto that it get uh, a, a, some kind of bailout, some kind of special deal cut for it. Now, just because there is no money announced in either budget or announced so far, that doesn't mean that no money will be found. We've uh, seen this happen before, where there's no deal, there's no deal, there's no deal until there's a deal. We have already mentioned that the provincial government has uh, substantial contingency funds. They could, of course, go to those if they need to do an emergency bailout of the city. And they, uh, they have more options beyond that. There. Uh, <laughs> the contingency funds would not uh, exhaust the alternatives that are available to the provincial or federal government if things get really dire. But for now, the city says that it can keep the lights on by spending down some of its reserve funds, but that if there isn't some kind of help in 2024, there is going to be some kind of combination of tax increases or service cuts. Hmm. Now, we should also mention that
1: yesterday, Monday, marked the official start of the long-awaited campaign to replace John Tory as mayor of Toronto. Candidate, were legally allowed to file their nomination papers, and many were there bright and early Monday morning. We've got familiar faces from provincial politics, including MPP Mitzi Hunter and former Tory candidate in the last provincial election
2: and former police chief Mark Saunders. Uh, Hunter is notable as uh, the only MPP to file her papers so far. Uh, She has until May 12th either to resign her seat at the legislature or uh, she would not be eligible to be placed on the ballot. That would be true of any MPP or uh, even a a federal member of parliament should any of them choose to run. Uh, We also saw former councillors Anna Bailao and Giorgio Mammoliti as well as current councillors Josh Matlow and Brad Bradford uh, also filed their papers on Monday morning. Did you see Bob Ray's tweet over the weekend announcing his entry into the Toronto mayor's race? I did. I enjoyed his uh, uh, <laughs> b- prescription that he said that the re- race needed more uh, fresh faces and that there were not enough <laughs> names on the ballot. <laughs>
1: well, listen, I think it made perfect sense. Bob Ray started as a member of parliament. He then went to provincial politics, became premier of Ontario. He then went back to federal politics to become the interim leader of the Liberals. And, uh, you know, the one area of politics he has not yet tackled would be municipal politics. So when he announced he was in the race, I thought, wow, this is a great and interesting development. And then I looked at my calendar.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would say that um, uh, the the former premier, the uh, former leader of the Liberal Party, uh, UN ambassador, I realize he's had a lot of tough battles, a lot of... uh, uh, you know, really uh, intense politics to deal with. He's never had to deal with parking policy in Kensington Market, and I wouldn't (laughs) sign up for that job for a million years. And I'm
1: guessing he doesn't want to either. He's probably happier where he is right now. Yeah, it was an April Fool's joke. Well played, former Premier Bob Ray. Now, on to issue two.
2: Mr. Speaker, the government's budget proves that they do not understand the urgency of this issue. When will the government take real steps to end homelessness in Ontario?
1: We're going to do a deep dive on the NDP this week because several stories related to the official opposition have unfolded. Let's start by checking back in with something we've been discussing for the past couple of weeks on the pod, and that is the arrival at Queen's Park of the new MPP for Hamilton Center, Sarah Jama. Now, Sarah's arrival was going to be historic if only because I believe she's the first MPP from the first day of her term in office ever to require a wheelchair to get around. Uh, I remember Monty Quinter the former liberal MPP needing one very late in his career, But he was in his 80s at the time. He was suffering from ill health near the end of a three-decade run at Queen's Park. This is different inasmuch as as Sarah Jama is a young woman born with cerebral palsy, so this has been a lifelong condition for her. And she is one of, I believe, 10 visible minority women serving in the legislature. And, of course, she's made a bit of a name for herself by saying some rather inflammatory things about the Israeli-Palestinian situation that eventually got her and her leader to
2: apologize for, quote-unquote, harms they may have caused to Ontario's Jewish community. There is a tradition at Queen's Park that when a new MPP first enters the chamber, they are escorted in by the leader of their party and the Speaker, and all the other members rise and give the new member a standing ovation to welcome them to the chamber. And we talked a bit about this last week, and, and because of Jamma's controversial past and, and some of her statements, we did wonder whether that tradition would continue. Right.
1: Now, neither one of us were there on the day when Sarah Jammer was welcomed into the legislature, so I had to consult video of the moment, and to the best of what I could see... Everyone stood, but not everyone applauded, which I thought was a very gentle and not embarrassing way to register a modicum of opposition to JAMA's election. Now, from the video I saw, which only showed the Progressive Conservative Caucus, so just to the right of the speaker, everyone did stand, but I did notice that the House leader, Paul Calandra, and the president of the Treasury Board, Pratmeet Sarkaria, did not applaud. And I'm inferring from that that they didn't want to be overt in their concern about this new member, but they did want to signal rather gingerly that they do have concerns about her. And since we've referred to this over the past couple of weeks, we thought we should just complete the story and let you know what happened last week to the best we were able to figure that out.
2: Yeah, and one thing I would say about the video is that we did see uh, the Premier and uh, uh, Minister Vic Fidelli, uh were standing in the front benches. They, they stood, they applauded. So there was definitely applause happening on the government side of the benches. It was just not uh, universal, I guess we could put it that way. But all eyes are going to be on Jemma now uh, to see whether some of the rhetoric from uh, her past, you know, uh, follows her to Queen's Park. She has a, a critics post with the NDP for disability issues and... Uh, goodness knows there are huge battles to be fought on that front to make Ontario more accessible and uh, barrier-free. The clip that we played at the top of this segment is from Gemma having her first question in question period. And, you know, we've talked a bit about some of the procedural changes that they have allowed in order to uh, encourage and and allow her to speak, uh, you know, The rules normally require members to stand, and uh, obviously they have had to accommodate her. Uh, So, you know, we are going to uh, keep an eye on things. I I think it's an interesting story in its own right, this, uh, as we say, a historic election, uh, and we will see what kind of contribution uh, she intends to make as the newest member of the Ontario legislature. Another story from the official opposition benches has
1: seen the NDP member for Algoma Manitoulin, Michael Mantha, ejected from the caucus. Mantha was first elected in 2011 is widely regarded as one of the nicer fellows at Queen's Park. But on Saturday morning, NDP leader Marit Stiles put out this statement.
2: JMM, why don't you take us through it? The news release that we got on Saturday morning does say I have removed Michael Mantha from the Ontario NDP caucus while an independent third-party investigation into alleged workplace misconduct takes place. In order to protect the privacy of the complainant and allow the investigation to run its course, I cannot share further details at this time. I take my responsibility to create a safe workplace seriously." Uh, That of course from NDP leader Marit Stiles. Now obviously we don't know what the nature of the complaint is, when it allegedly happened, to whom it allegedly happened, uh, whether it happened at Queen's Park or in the member's Office, Uh, It is being investigated and we will report back when we know something. Uh, This of course brings the number of independent MPPs in the legislature to three. Uh, We have uh, Vincent Ke who was uh, just booted from the PC caucus uh, over the allegations that he cooperated with the Chinese government to influence uh, Canadian elections. Uh, He has vowed to clear his name. Bobby Ann Brady, who we had on the podcast a while back, uh, she was elected as an independent in June of 2022, which is very rare, uh, but... She she's, I think, the first in a generation. Uh, And now uh, Michael Mantha will join them uh, in the uh, corner reserve for independence at the legislature pending the outcome of this investigation. And let's do one more NDP related item.
1: Last week, the New Democrats released their postmortem on the 2022 election and why the party, while still official opposition, did lose nine seats from the previous election as the Tories cruised to their second consecutive majority government. J.M.M., let's
2: get into that. Postmortem Report. Dive in and tell us what's, what's the headline here. Sure. I mean, anyone who remembers the report that the Ontario Liberal Party issued after their disappointing finish last year will see a lot of similar themes in the NDP's report. There's a lot of criticism for the office of then leader Andrew Horvath for centralizing the message and for not listening to input from members. Uh, The party heard from people who worked around the campaign that both staff and volunteers found the lines of communication confusing and that the work of volunteers was made more difficult because in some cases they literally didn't know who to call to fix a problem so lots to work on in terms of communications but the next election is also going to see the
1: party have to recruit nearly a hundred new candidates So what did the report have to say about candidate
2: recruitment? You know, I think it's fair to say that the NDP did a better uh, talent search in 2022 than the Liberals did, uh, arguably did better than the NDP did in 2018. Uh, People have short memories in politics, but the NDP actually had a few candidates in 2018 that they needed to apologize for, something we really didn't see a lot of in 2022. But the flip side of that was that we did hear stories of candidates getting shut out of nomination races. They were very tightly controlled. Lots of people thought that they weren't getting a fair hearing. Uh, People who wanted to get into politics were unable to do so. So the report recommends clearer guidelines for who is and is not eligible to be uh, a new Democratic uh, MPP or aspiring MPP and greater transparency so that people who might want to take a run at, at being elected know what's what before they get started. And one more thing here. What about the secret to comedy, which is also the secret to politics, namely timing? One thing that caught my eye in the report uh, was urging the NDP to, quote, start everything sooner. Uh, Campaign staff and volunteers urging the party to have clearer plans laid out well in advance of the start of the election, uh, in part uh, because of those communications problems I mentioned. There was an interesting bit about how the fixed election date is uh, sort of a, a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, it lets parties plan very far in advance. On the other hand, if you're starting two years out, there's always a temptation to just push things off a little bit further. You know that the election isn't going to be right around the corner, so there's a bit less urgency. Um, the people who wrote this report would like to see the party really buckle down and and get things going very early on. The theory being that if, if the party has its plans laid out very early, it will give everyone time to be on the same page, those communication problems that I mentioned earlier. But there are specifics here. The report urges the party to have a campaign-specific director hired by the end of 2023. That is this year, in case you've forgotten. And a, a, they want a director of communications hired no later than spring of 2024, a full two years before the election formally uh, starts. Uh, you know, it's election season. It just keeps getting earlier and earlier, Steve. It's a perpetual campaign nowadays. That's right. Both uh,
1: south of the border and now apparently in the province of Ontario as well. On to issue three. Two years ago, Ontario appointed its first ever poet laureate. The position was established through a bill put forward by Windsor Tecumseh MPP Percy Hatfield, and we've been following this story
2: ever since. Joining us now to bring a close to this new role's first chapter is the poet laureate, Randall Adjaye. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to see you again, how are you? I'm
1: wonderful, great to be here. I bet you are wonderful. Now, I'm gonna start by asking you a question which is a bit like asking who your favorite child is, but do you have a favorite highlight from your time in this role?
0: That is tough. Yeah, I told you. I I think it would probably be the appointment in and of itself. April 28th, 2021, you can imagine myself telling my immigrant parents I wanted to be a poet who had aspirations for me to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, you name it. Uh, And I remember telling them, and they said, Well, you're too smart. You're too smart to be a poet. And so they didn't quite support me in the process, but I pursued it anyways because I knew this is what I was destined to do. And so, being there in the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, as my name was called, my parents beaming, happy, excited, <laughs> and then my dad, who's a uh, very big in politics, turns to me and says, "Randall, I- I've never been to Parliament, but I'm here because of you. I'm so proud of you." That's the third time he ever said he was proud of me. Maybe second, but you know, that was that was a highlight. You know, just my parents seeing me actualize a vision that I had was incredible. Where are your folks from? Ghana, West Africa. Wow. Okay. And you're how old? I'm 31. So you were in your 20s when you got the appointment. 29, yes. Indeed. How about that? So that would be a pretty cool moment for them. Very cool, for sure. <laughs> did, did you make them eat crow at all for that? <laughs> uh, man, you know, I, I think that moment just, just, just I love proving people wrong. People have always doubted me, and that, that was enough for them to eat their own crow, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the pandemic felt like, uh, I mean, a strange, but a very important time to get a role that
0: involves Uplifting people through poetry. How did the pandemic shape things for you? It was quite tough. You know, being this community leader that I've been for the past 11 years now, uh, oftentimes I'm a strong friend to a lot of people, so not many people do actually call to check in and say, how are you? So, you know, living in my apartment alone was really tough. It was kind of difficult because no one really called to check in. I, hey, how you doing? How you doing? But I didn't really get many of those calls. So I just, looked inward. I started doing a lot of like meditation and yoga, some therapy, just working on myself. I was no longer that leader who was being put up in this pedestal that people often do. And so I just went to work on myself. And I think the results, you know, really, really came out very well.
1: Now, presumably part of the gist of the job, part of the mission is to get around the province and to recite poetry in public settings. But of course, during COVID, you can't really do that. So how did
0: you do your job? So a lot of it was virtual, a lot of Zoom. Uh, I'm not a fan of Microsoft Teams, but I won't say anyth- I won't say it again. <laughs> uh, but a lot of it was Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and Google Meet. So, I mean, I ended up doing schools in Ottawa. I did schools in Thunder Bay, Sudbury. You know, we, we did a, lot of, a number of different things. Now that uh, we're here, things are a little bit more open. Uh, I'm going to be in Thunder Bay next month. I'm in Bruce County next month. I'm in Waterloo again next month. So I'm going to be able to travel a little bit more.
1: Now, the you're the first guy to have the job. Yeah. So basically, I, I'm guessing to a certain extent, you can create the job that you want it to be. So what did you see as first and foremost your mission in this role?
0: For me, the mission was looking at the number of young people. Just recently, uh, Kids Help Phone did this campaign called Feel Out Loud because a lot of youth and young people had their own challenges with their own mental health. And for me, I really wanted to focus on what does it look like to help young people express what they're going through? when the adults themselves are dealing with their own traumas and hardships. You know, a lot of young people are turning to drugs. They're turning to uh, a lot of negative things that aren't the most supportive. So I really wanted to tap into the youth and the young people and let them know that they have a voice, that their voice matters, uh, that it's okay to not be okay. And poetry can be a vehicle for you to help explore that. What didn't you get done that you wish you had? That's a really good question. I wanted to have more events at the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. Uh, You can imagine it's a great place, but not many people know what it's like, not many people visit. So I wanted to really use it as a bridge between community and politics. I think politics is community building, but often communities left outside of the the privilege or the opportunity to be a part of it. So for me, that was something I really wanted to do, and there's an opportunity to do it later on. Uh, Not sure if you guys are aware, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I've had an opportunity to kind of extend, extend the role uh, a little bit longer, which oh, is Oh, do amazing. tell.
1: What's this about? Uh,
0: um, I think this is the first time I'm saying this publicly, actually. Uh, but uh, due to the pandemic and some of what's, what's happened, the speaker, Ted Arnott, and the clerk kind of gave the, the nod to say, let's extend it one more year and give me an opportunity to really travel, go around the province, connect with more youth, connect with more people, and inspire a little bit longer. How, how many tenths of a second did it take for you to say, okay? I didn't even bat an eye. Like, I didn't even <laughs> blink, I said, of course. So it was, it was exciting, <laughs> really, really exciting. Who got you into poetry in the first place? That's a loaded question, but I, I think when I was about six, seven years old, I used to like write in my notebook, just having conversation, dialogue with self. And really, it wasn't until my grade eight teacher, so I wasn't always the, I was an angry child when I was younger. Um, and I had this grade-A teacher. Her name is Andrea Samartis, and I always take the time to say her name because she really helped me a lot. But Andrea Samartis had this 13-year-old kid who was arrested um, three times by the time he was 13, suspended a number of times. And instead of judging me, Andrea Samartis said, tell me your story. And this was the first time anyone ever took the time to listen to Randall, that I wasn't a bad kid. I was just angry. I needed an outlet. And so Andrea Samartis just said, tell me your story, and actually came out as a poem. And that was when I knew I could write. The second time was this, uh, this poet named Buna Muhammad, who was on stage at a U of T event. I saw him on stage. I was sitting front row. And as soon as I saw him perform his first poem, I said, that's going to be me one day. How old were you? I was 16 years old. Fabulous.
1: Yeah. Would you favor us with a poem right now? I mean, I think uh, there's no point in having the poet laureate here without hearing... The Poet Laureate do his thing.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's the third day of National Poetry Month, um, so I'm I'm kind of excited. And this poem is really just a snippet of uh, the power of spoken word. This spoken word is a gift, and you can emanate life or death by the mere intention coming out of your lips. We can speak dreams into existence, creating a world united or divided so you can choose to be the change. or remain silent. By size, the tongue is the strongest muscle in our bodies for a reason. It is a tool to connect us to the divine. More than just speaking, it keeps us believing. It is a portal between time and space mixed, the inspiration of ancient hieroglyphs. See, our words can build dynasties and mend broken bonds. Our words can create vitality and give us the freedom of redemption songs. Our words can emanate life and death. You have the gift within you. Leave a legacy that will continue etch your name in the Dendro chronology of history's pages. Do not allow the from and to on your tombstone just to be dated. Let the dash in between reveal the story you told and of the magic that you created.
1: That is brilliant. Hey, we, I mean, people who are listening to this can't see this, he didn't read that. <laughs> That's all from memory and your eyes were closed. So you were, where were you there?
0: I have this beautiful relationship with creativity. I think we all do. Um, and I was just kind of tapping into that connection with creativity and, and the reason why I wrote this. Uh, words are really powerful. You know, words have an opportunity to open someone's mind. And I know someone did it for me, so every time I perform, I really just try to go to that place so that it can have that impact that's, that it has a capacity to have.
1: I got to tell you this little tiny story here. When you talked about the dash there, mm-hmm. right? Marcy Ian, Do you know Marcy Ian? I am. Yeah. Federal cabinet minister. I am. You're represents familiar. downtown Toronto. Yep. She has a kid named Dash.
0: Mm. And she
1: named her son Dash for that same reason. Wow. Because life is not about the day you were born or the day you died. It's about the Dash, right? It's about what you did in between. Absolutely. So when you mentioned that in your poem, that really resonated to me because I, I know that kid. Thank you. <laughs> so there you go.
0: Thank you. <laughs> if our listeners want to hear more of your work, where can they find it? You can go to OntarioPoet.org, and if you go to my work, uh, there are poems that have been recorded and poems that are available via text. I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can find some of my work there, but just to have that kind of intimate experience with it, you can go on OntarioPoet.org.
1: Randell Ajay, it's so great to have you back into our little hovel here at TVO. (laughs) And uh, we're really delighted that you got another year ahead of doing this work. And we hope you get all over the province of Ontario to share your brilliance. So good on you, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you. And that is the On Poly podcast for this April 4th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on about the state of the Toronto mayor's race since yesterday, as we indicated, was day one for candidates to file their papers. They have until May the 12th to get into the race, and Election
2: Day is June 26th. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. You can write us an email at tv.org. Here's an email from listener Brian Lewis, who writes... Hello to the On Poly podcast from a regular listener and former provincial chief economist. Hey, hey. I uh, just wanted to pass on some feedback. Your description of the key economic and financial aspects of the Ontario budget was excellent. It was concise, accurate, and insightful. Congratulations on a job well done. Also, you are not the only ones who missed the energy of an in-person budget <laughs> lockup. Those were the days, and that comes from Brian. Uh, Brian, we are so
1: with you. We missed those lockups. Great access to officials who knew the budget inside and out. Great energy in the room. Great socializing, too, I have to say. Having a chance to see reporters you might only see once a year. So, uh, yeah, we missed the lockups. Also, just a final note here that we seem to be experiencing some technical difficulties with an old episode of the podcast republishing itself on our feed. This happened to me, too, this morning. I woke up and there was a podcast from, I don't know, almost a year ago that was uh, at the top of my feed. Uh, we have people on our end looking into fixing this, so our apologies if you've been subjected to our September 2019 episode on carbon pricing more than once, although uh, interesting timing with the latest hike on the price of carbon just about set to come in, so there you go. Maybe maybe the machine was just being, uh, I don't know,
2: prescient or something like that. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. I, that was a good episode. I really liked that episode. <laughs> did, did you listen to it again? <laughs> no, but uh, it, <laughs> when it showed up on my feed, I, I was like, hmm, that- I I don't remember us doing that. I mean, some days, the the days are all a blur, but I really didn't remember doing a new carbon pricing episode. You know why? Because we didn't. Yeah. That's why. (laughs) Anyways, there we go. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahyar Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucchetta, and
1: Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.